hybrid companies, remote first companies that are trying to go back to office. If you're selling into that, you used to be able to travel to particular prospects site and talk to them about their thing. And now you're on Zoom all the time. And I think the nature of what going back in person is going to mean for marketers, I think is a real opportunity for us to change how marketing contributes to the whole go-to-market. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in-the-weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Hey leaders, welcome back for this end of summer boo-hoo 2022 episode. Today I am welcoming Mark Grilly to the show. Mark, I would love if you would give an introduction of yourself and your work for the audience. Sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Mark Grilly. I'm a chief marketing officer at a company called Commerce Hub. We provide dropship software for all the major retailers in mostly US, but some in Europe. And most of you have gotten something shipped via our software because all the major retailers in North America are our customers, which is a pretty exciting place to be. And I've been at Commerce Hub for about nine months. And before that, I was at Adobe for almost 14 years and ran the document business and product marketing there. And I'm excited to be here today. Oh, great, great. So for the uninitiated amongst us, and I do know what dropshipping is, and I have made some money dropshipping, but what is dropshipping and why does it matter? Sure. The way I like to describe it is think about it as an extension of the warehouse capability of any e-tailer or retailer. My favorite example is if you're going to one of the big home improvement stores and you want to online and you want to buy a generator, the generator is not likely to be in their warehouse, although they list it on their site. And so they ship it directly to you from that place. And in the case of a generator, it's a big truck that shows up. And so they have to coordinate all that too. And so our software orchestrates all of the interconnection with their e-commerce site making and the vendors, making sure that the PO gets processed because it's like on-demand inventory, and then orchestrates all the communications to get it shipped and delivered to you. And then when you call, let's say, homedepot.com to ask them, where's my stuff? We help make sure that information is integrated with their systems so that they know where all your stuff is and can tell you exactly what's going on and great customer experience. It's not just for big things that don't fit in warehouses. It's also a way for retailers to extend inventory into all kinds of different categories. And some use it a lot and some use it a little, but that's what it does. So rather than holding inventory as a company that sells physical things, I can then interface directly with the OEM or the distributor or whoever that is, and I can sell it as if I have it, but I don't actually have it. And then I get my share of the money without having to have the space to store thing X. Exactly. And a lot of retailers, for example, their warehouse space is designed to help them fulfill in their stores. And so they didn't create like a huge warehouse infrastructure for e-commerce. So it's also a way for them to extend into that too, depending on where they came from. And Commerce Hub's been around for 20 plus years. And so this is a capability that's been around for a while and has grown and morphed as the e-commerce industries evolve. 
I'm trying to think 25 years ago, I didn't buy a whole lot of things online. So is that, was that early to the space or has there been pivots or something new? Certainly many things new developed. They probably rebuilt the whole platform several times. But Yeah. A lot of it had to do with one of the early customers was QVC and that's almost a predominantly dropship model where if you're selling stuff through QVC.com, you would then, or even on their regular shows and stores, that would be something that came from directly from the supplier. And then I think the big thing that changed in the industry is years years ago, if you were a supplier, your whole life was wholesale. Then they started building capabilities for direct to consumer. And so there's a, a whole class of suppliers that also sell directly to consumers. And so therefore they exist in both worlds and therefore dropship makes sense. Because if you think about it, if I have a warehouse and I'm only good at shipping pallets, dropship doesn't make any sense. But if I get good at shipping the single item via a shipping carrier, then dropship can make sense as well. Yeah, understood. And D to C is a huge area of commerce now. I think I'm, most of us probably buy all or too many things on Amazon or maybe a few select other apps. But I know from talking to entrepreneurs that there are really great opportunities for niche products that can be sold and shipped directly to consumers. And you can see the classic stories like the I don't know, Dollar Shave Club, right? Well, they start out that way and then they'll get snapped up by a big player. And I think behind the scenes there is if not drop shipping some type of what they would call like 3PL, right? Like third-party yeah. logistics and shipping provider. So how does exactly. that all go together? It, it, it does. There's a capability that gets a lot of play called Marketplace, which is the way, and you think about Amazon has one target, Walmart, they have them. And some companies like Wayfair or, or Etsy are like pure marketplaces. But the idea that the seller actually is also is like putting up a storefront. Um, and so like in the case of someone like a target, when you go there, it says it's a marketplace seller and that's their listing of their things. And that allows retailers to also extend inventory. It's a different economic model I've learned and how that works. If I'm Target, I make a commission off of what goes through Marketplace versus the margin that I would normally make on my own inventory. Um, and so it's a, just a different economic model. And so it's a way to experiment and learn. And then it's also a way for companies to just add assortment that they normally wouldn't have. And we believe that dropship and marketplace are very close together. It's just a different economic model. And we enable that as well. So you went from many years of selling software and products that deal only with the digital world, intentionally converting the physical into digital in some cases. And now you've got the other side where, well, we're dealing with software to move around physical goods. Does anything change there as a marketing leader? Do you have to rewire your brain and your paradigms? It's interesting. Yes and no. Some of the things that, and I realized I left out, I was at another company between Adobe and here, but called Zendesk. And so I, I took a stop along the way of CRM software. Those are, those are shipping help desk tickets and yeah, exactly. uh, customer complaints, right? Exactly. I, We'd yeah, actually I, rather you just drop those so we can skip that one. Exactly. <laughs> Don't tell me when people complain about stuff. Exactly. <laughs> I think it's, I think they're all related which is really interesting because some of it, if you think about the transformation of like paper to digital as a marketer, you're trying to convince people to do things a different way. I'm trying to convince people that there's a better way to do things, a more efficient way to do things. I always joke, go find the fax machine in your office. Like nowadays, they're, well, we don't have offices nowadays, but like finding the fax machine was hard for a long time, but then it used to be a staple. And so 
it's this evolution as a marketer and how do you resonate uh, and connect with the thing that maybe gets you to pay attention of the need to change. And so my joke was the fax machine. And in the case of the physical goods that we're helping move around, we're the digital part of that. The really intriguing part for me as a marketer is, again, trying to help organizations figure out how to streamline things um, and do things differently. Because even some of the digital automation that we do to help move e-commerce goods around is done in an old way. It's done in a way that's very fax machine-like. And so we have to find ways to connect. And in the case of our world, whereas before we were connecting both with buyers, but a lot of end users, we're really thinking about the buying center and the business value. And so the good news is we have a story to tell that's ROI, that's a little easier than just be more productive. One of my favorite challenges as a marketer is trying to convince people to be more productive. Like you can throw all kinds of stats at, but most of the time you don't look around and go, look, I was 10% more productive today and I can demonstrate that. So it was, it was a bigger challenge then than it is now. Yeah, yeah, I love that you said that. I live at the bottom of the funnel. We're the ones that actually have to turn the things into money. And I, when I work with marketers and new company, go to market, existing, whatever this is, listen, we need to phrase this in a way that makes people more money. Because I really, I sincerely believe at the end of the day, nobody wakes up looking at the ceiling at three o'clock in the morning and says, I really need more efficiencies. Like they don't, they talk about needing more revenue and needing more sales. And I believe that if we, all of us can work together and position solutions as money-making devices, ultimately that's an easier thing to sell and make transactions on. I don't know if you experienced that, but it's important exactly. to us. Exactly. And you have to tap into leadership as well, because one of the hard parts of this is that who's going to make the change within the organization? Like change management's hard, both in like my personal career, like watching companies try and become different things. And so imagine talking to someone that says, if you were to change the way you do everything, you could save 20% of your salaries because you could redeploy them to something else. Like it's a real thing. You could demonstrate it, but it's a lot of risk. And as an executive, how do you convince an executive to take the risk to make a change with that at the end of the tunnel? And it's so who's got the patience or the ability to carry that message through an entire organization. And that's part of the challenge is tapping into that sort of sponsorship, if you will, and getting them excited about what's possible. Yeah. Like invariably introducing change, even if the end result can demonstrably be more profit, it's a big gap mentally there to say we need to get there. And that's where people are making tons of money on digital transformation because you have to is the same mandate that was around the year 2000. Thank God none of these dates work anymore and we can sell $100 million of ERP software. And it's not a happy place to consume from. It's more like we're getting our lunch eaten and okay, like now I've been forced into change. Nobody wants to be on the marketing and sales side of winning that war, but it sure is nice where you can go to somebody and say, hey, do this thing, watch this. People make more money when they do this. And if you want to have an outrageously bad gross margin and net profit at the bottom, that's up to you. Go ahead and waste the money. But wouldn't you like to have more money to waste? <laughs> so. Oh, totally. 
And the exciting thing for me about the industry, I've, I've not been a retail person until this job, is that it's ripe for big changes. Um, I, I think of things like if your job is to help someone be 10% more efficient, that's really hard. That's Your competitive advantage is going to be a very, very thin thing. We have the opportunity to make things 10x better in the retail industry. And that's why I joined. And as a marketer, that's a much more lucrative place to be. I see a lot of my peers and friends in worlds where they're just trying to differentiate on something that is hair thin different. And that's a lot harder. And I think that's one of the challenges that we all face in this sort of B2B SaaS world we're in. Yeah, absolutely. I think anywhere you live in the SaaS space, if there's an opening, somebody is making a product there and you end up with these ridiculous, you can see it in Marcom, you can see it in sales tech, you can see it in operations software, like these outrageous diagrams of thousands of point solutions that are all incrementally different than the other one. And I don't know how you solve that as an industry, because I understand why it happens, but it sure does make a difficult marketplace because all we do is foist that ridiculous level of complexity onto the buyer. And by by the result of that, then we get in a position where we have to provide the very best of educational materials to make the buying experience different. And it's this sort of rolling thing that seems constantly ripe in every space for consolidation. And yet that consolidation never seems to happen, except very top of the chain. So. That's right. It seems like it is ripe for consolidation in a lot of ways, but it's also many of those technologies, like like it. For, if you have something that, that is successful to start, you find a customer and you start going and you get funding and you move, then you find a few customers. And what I've learned is that it's, it's probably, you know, once you get past that first phase, it's not hard to get to $50 million. Like you can find enough, like once you you can replicate that. But then you hit these plateaus and then the bigger companies look at these other customers and say, you're plateaued for a reason and they're less less interested. That feature is really expensive. <laughs> Should we build it ourselves? And time and time again, that's the staying power of a big company like Microsoft is they'll just, they'll invest five years to in something and wait it out. And then they suddenly have that thing and it's good enough. And you look at the teams, they're still fighting away. It's really interesting to see. And we were partners at Adobe with Microsoft, so we got to learn a lot about their team's journey. And sure, Zoom was further along, but they're still chugging along. And when you have a trillion dollar market cap, you can afford to spend a few dollars screwing up for 20 years. Eventually, you're going to get it right there. And which brings me to a question of just going from, was it a noticeable difference going from an Adobe, which is just an absolute monster and like covers so much ground and can just buy anybody they want. If it becomes annoying, they'll buy it and integrate it. And then being at, a, I'm not going to say a smaller, smaller company, clearly like there's a leap there between an Adobe and a commerce hub from an organization size. And I was just wondering, is that invigorating or challenging or both? And Yeah. And for me, the journey, I was at public companies for 20 plus years. And so public companies operated a cadence that's very obviously quarterly driven, hit the number. There's not a lot of patience beyond a year. Um, and so the operating cadence and the rigor that requires you to report and talk about what you're doing and execute is right in front of you. It's been a really interesting step to the private company. And then 
it's a different rigor. And now, not to say we don't have a quarterly cadence and we need to hit our numbers and we need to execute, but that external reporting pressure of having to do earnings call is just different. Um, and so there's a patience that's there. We have an awesome board that is excited about what we're doing. And so it's just a different model. And so I like to say that my brain got hardwired and it's sometimes I also just call it scar tissue of needing to be in front of all the reporting and telling the story internally and aligning resources and people around things you're trying to do, that that pace and cadence is just different. And so that's been an interesting place for me professionally and personally to go. But it's also things are broken everywhere. Every company, you feel like you have it all figured out. You probably don't. And most companies, even the ones that execute really well, are always pointing at new things they need to do or changes they need to make. And so that's what keeps us busy. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's right. And even if it's actually not broken right now, the nature of growth, like you said, you're going to be in any rapid or even a reasonable growth posture within a couple of years, you're going to be a different company. Anyway, you have to be a company that can support whether it's five work with companies down in the half million of revenue and then 5 million of revenue and 50 million. Every 5x to 10x leap, what got you here won't get you there. And, and you're dealing with process debt, technical debt, human debt, all types of things that, that then don't translate to what do I need to do now at the company I'm at now to become where I want to be later and not hopefully not throw out what I was before. And that's exactly right. And for me, like the experience of the last, I don't know, 15, 20 years is how much the market has changed. And whatever you're executing against now is not the next four years. Like it's going to change. And in the world of software, we went from perpetual software to recurring revenue subscription-based software. And that was a huge transformation at my time in Adobe. We're looking at in the e-commerce industry, buy online and pick up in store has become a huge thing. And obviously COVID did influence some of that. But the idea that your store is your warehouse, they 10 years, five years ago, no one thought of that. Um, and so that requires you to think through things totally differently. And again, that's what makes us exciting, excited about the opportunity we have because we can help with some of that. What do you bring along from 20 years ago as lessons learned or to put it another way, I'm a fan of The Office. I don't know if you are the show, but there's a, there's an episode where Jim is messing with Dwight and he's sending him faxes from future Dwight. And, and I always think about what if what a future Mark could scroll, take a Sharpie and scroll on a piece of paper and fax it back to Passmark, what would you advise? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, and also a very funny episode. The thing that I think a lesson learned is move faster, have conviction and move faster towards what you're trying to do would be the one of the biggest things. There's a lot of risk aversion. We talked, I talked about it a few minutes back, just about just in making decisions to change. We took a business model that was a perpetual business model and we're going to try and make it into a recurring revenue and in hindsight we were we guessed but we didn't move as fast as we would like it was successful and we did a great thing as a team but i would have moved faster and i carry that with me today of just like trying to make more bold changes declarative changes faster because it's just it's again it's this revert to the mean everything goes back to the way it was and if you're going to transform your go-to-market or you're going to transform a marketing organization six months flies by 
and then you're talking about next year impact and suddenly it's two years away. And I would say to anyone, move faster. Move faster, but don't break things, right? Isn't that the... <laughs> well, no, I think there's a, lot, there's a lot to be said for breaking things. So yeah. again, getting into sort of marketing... As long as it's not society, I guess. Maybe that's the yeah, lesson. Don't break learn. society. <laughs> but I think that's, that's a really good call out. But for, hey, we have to do this. We're all working in scarcity. We're all working in not enough resources, budget, time. And questioning your current state is a really important thing. I hear this from brands who are doing direct-to-consumer today, that the economic model of using Instagram or Facebook to acquire users is broken. But I guarantee you all those brands are still spending all their money on Instagram and Facebook because even though it's broken, they don't know anything. We had this sort of display advertising spend at a previous company, spent a lot of money on display advertising with our friends over at Google. Turns out when you turn it off, things didn't change. Okay. So some businesses, I can't say that's my tactic work for us, but it didn't work, won't work for everybody. But you have to question things. And if you're always treading water or never really committed to that change, that's what I would have told the old me along with some practical jokes, probably. <laughs> right. Do you, do you subscribe to the sort of test, iterate, agile type of mindset, which I think at times is useful, other times maybe limiting? I think the test iterate, yes, we did some amazing, of course, Adobe sells great software around testing, test, iterate, and learn. And we used to call it the $50 million button. We put a button inside a piece of software that we thought might earn us $50 million as revenue. And sure enough, we figured out it did. And that was just the testing and optimization of an experience with lots of users all the time. But you also, testing is a can be a limited track because you might not see the forest for the trees or the data might tell you the story that's in the 10% better, but not the 10X better. And so you have to have a bit of strategic thinking outside the testing window, if that makes sense, so that you can make sure that you're testing against the right things. Because I also think about people and their approach to testing. If you tell someone who's really good at testing, go test this thing, they will go test that thing and they will keep grinding away at it and do their best job at it. Is that the right direction to be putting that resource? And sometimes yes, and sometimes no. And statistically significant results, it's always a put your finger in the air and hope it works, but there's a lot to be learned there as well. Yeah, yeah. And I talk to a lot of marketing leaders in, in particular that continue to wrestle with, are we now too data-driven? Have we become just performance demand marketers and we don't think bigger or strategically or take chances anymore. We run the data and we do the next thing. And I think that's relevant in any place in business because the areas that you don't have enough data to make a perfect decision are potentially the areas where you could have some kind of breakout paradigm shifting success. That's right. And I, I, that's where it's a, if I use like attribution modeling as a way, like it, they're good things to do. It's a good practice to have. But you, it's not written in stone. That's the actual only answer. Because attribution models don't tell you if your creative was good. They can tell you if it worked right, but they can't tell you that the creative was the reason. And so you have to have this art and science mixed together at all times, I think. And I like the idea of challenging ourselves to think creatively too. Like we're marketers. We should not We should be very numbers driven, which is really exciting. I love the old adage I'm marketing. I can tell you 50% of my marketing is not working, but I can't tell you which 50%. Like, that's funny, but I like the idea of continuing to push the creative side as well, because sometimes that's the answer. 
Yeah, somewhere there's got to be a good, happy medium between the madman liquor and guessing and exceptional data lake driven micro transaction tracking. I have to imagine that the art and science balance is a real thing. I don't know that anybody has perfectly nailed it, but it stands out as a I don't think a lesson that it manifests easily in the marketing story, but you could certainly look at that in any business context, as we all learned with human and performance management over COVID. Hey, we don't know all the things. We just know that we held a few variables steady. And it turns out when you yank the rug out, that actually we couldn't count on that thing at all. So Totally. And time and time again, you've got examples of, okay, we can... We have a metric, we're managing that metric. We should totally use that as a metric, but it's not, you can also manipulate it. Like you can flood parts of the funnel, if you're talking about demand, with bad stuff and that doesn't go all the way through. And so I might look good on my KPI dashboard because I did some things, but that's the wrong answer. And again, it's art and science mixed together. It's understanding the customer journey and really understanding what's what matters. And that's part of where we are. I think marketers today have more data in front of them than they've ever had before. Like it's amazing what you're capable of learning and doing. I just think that the digital advertising side of things has made it such that people rely on that as a crutch and it should be a balance. What are the, besides brand and creative, what are some of the other let's say more art leaning places that you have to deal with. I can imagine, for example, user communities or some kind of relationship driven stuff doesn't adhere to very well to data. Yeah. It's one of my favorite things is when you do like back when we met in person, like customer forums or things that industry events, if you do the, instead of looking at the stage and you looked at all the audience and they're all on their phones or in their computers and they're half listening, what's the thing that happens that causes them to put down their phone and look up. And it's a fascinating thing to think about that because we, at one previous company, I had the, we had internal meetings and the same thing, engineers not paying attention in an internal meeting. Then someone started talking about this API toolkit they built and you could do this thing on the weekend and figured out this really cool thing. And everyone stopped and looked. And to me, that was the light bulb of what causes you to stop and look. And I find it's a genuine conversation that comes from customers talking about their jobs because I can hear, hey, person A, that's they're solving something that's interesting to me. You know, vendors, we all talk and we say a lot of things and it all sounds like blah, blah, blah at some level. But if someone says, this is how I made my job better and the journey I was on, that genuineness is part of it. And again, how do you measure genuineness and authenticity? Because I don't know, you go to any B2B website and you read their case studies there are a lot of them written in ways that are some marketing-y. Do people go to websites and actually read case studies? I, 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 I would argue they don't. Um, that's also part yeah. of it. Um, <laughs> I know from, a, and we think of it at the bottom of the funnel as sales enablement, just saying, I've got to tell the particular element I need at that particular time. And I don't care how much you've implemented your knowledge base or all these things like, oh, here's case studies and here's decks and here's all this that doesn't answer what that particular large customer wants to understand right now it's hard and i think the holy grail of our world in, in sales would be like how do we get on-demand sales enablement that says exactly what we want without all the fluff around it because that's how deals get done and value gets added 
I think it's storytelling too. Like I, if I think about the salespeople I've worked with in my world, it's like they tell a narrative, right? They're telling you a story. They have anecdotes that reinforce things and they introduce them at the right times and places if they're really good at their jobs. As marketers, we need to do the same thing and trying to figure out what's appropriate at the right time and place. And it's the ongoing debate of, are you being nurtured? Where are you in the funnel? How qualified are you? Are you part of the buying center or not? And all those things have to play in and get complicated depending on how much scale you need to do it at. And again, that's part of the fun of being a marketer right now is trying to figure all of that out. So if you could wave the magic wand, what are the things that you really want in your world of SaaS marketing that vex you? I think the thing about SaaS marketing to me is I don't think we have the best job in the tool sets that we have to understand truly how, especially in our world, we're selling to a lot of bigger companies, how to think about that influence circle that is buying our software. Think about the org chart and all the influence in the org chart. We have very club-like early caveman tools to talk to the person who is the influencer of this thing and who they are. Now, in some cases, it's who's the Salesforce admin? Okay, we can figure that out and talk to them. And then it makes it easier, but that's in a more mature space. But if you're talking about transforming your organization towards any goal, how do you find the people that have influence to do that and the mandate to do that and then map to that and then have a conversation? Now, salespeople who are really good at enterprise selling figure this out. But I challenge you to, they can tell you the story and they usually sometimes, some of the really good ones can even on a PowerPoint slide will tell you all that. I guarantee you that doesn't get reflected into most systems and into most systemic thinking. And so it's really a person led thing. And so I support the person, the salesperson doing that job with marketing, but I'd love to wave the magic wand that help them make it rain a little bit more. Cause like on a SMB or consumer side, we can make it rain, but on the enterprise side, it's really much harder. No, you're right. And I think those of us that have done this for a dozen years, if I had to explain to you how I do it, there's no good tool. Everybody has, oh, here's your account map and here's your ABM thing. And you can tag this and tag that. But it's every single time I've tried one of those things, it's just a whole bunch of work. And the reality is I need to know that Jill over in marketing and Bob and procurement and all the things like these are the people that are touching my stuff. And I know personally, I I consider myself a reasonable, successful sales person, but I suck at explaining to anybody else how I do it. And that's the hard part, right? (laughs) That is, that is the hard part. What's also fascinating to me is that really good salespeople can sell anything. And it doesn't necessarily, we write all this value messaging and all these things, like they figure out ways to get it done. And so we generally generally don't read all the value messaging decks. We actually really hate those. Yeah. No, it's what's interesting to me about if you and I were to go through a checklist and say, here's all the things that you might want to do. We talked about case studies a few minutes ago, like all the things that need to be created to support like launching a new thing and telling the sales team and customers about it. It's a long list. It's a heavy tax. And then you do the, and then give it all a grade of how many people do it. Go to the website, do they read things? Do they, do salespeople use it? The perennial challenge right now is, do anyone, does anyone care? And you have to do it, but does anyone, does it matter? And I think that's, maybe that's my second wave of the magic wand of the, does it pass the, does it matter test? And I think that's, I mean, I, 
I empathize with product marketers in general because I understand why we need to go through this. And I go, I'm really sorry you need to throw yourself in front of that car. But the reality of just, it's an overwhelming amount of information when I need a piece of it at a time. And I think that's the really hard part. And I'm sure you have too. You walk into SaaS companies all the time. And if you really get into the salespeople and they trust you, they go, marketing, throw all this crap at us, but I don't even read it. And some of them are successful and some of them aren't. But I think like how to, if I had to wave mine, it would be like, how do we facilitate real conversations for all the people that are in that commerce function is no, seriously, sit on calls with me all day for a week and show me, then tell me if what we're producing together on the content side is relevant. And I think in the flip side, like how many sales people would be able to tolerate the strategic load of figuring out personas? I think they would go absolutely bonkers. No, it's the, like almost get everything into natural language in a way. And I think that's the, one of the big gaps is how does it, how to make it so that it is a conversation and it can sound natural and not pitchy. And, and again, it depends on the business and some businesses have very much an inbound funnel that have to have people talking a certain way and all that kind of stuff. But it, the more natural it is, the better. You go to any marketing department and it's a knock on me and others. We don't write in natural language most of the time, but you in sales do and need to speak that way. And so how do you bridge those two? And it's- Well, it's, you wouldn't be able to write some of the things I say. So we do get away with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's that. Sometimes the reporter isn't running. Yeah. No, I empathize with people on- all those sides. And it is that cross-disciplinary language. And not to mention that all of us, for example, like in a, in your world, neither sales nor marketing in most worlds is the customer at all. So not only are we not speaking the same language internally, but none of us by nature of providing a SaaS product in most cases are actually doing the thing that the, the, thing is meant to solve, right? Like you don't have like at your disposal, a complete warehouse distribution and store network that you could be like, I wonder what this is like to use on a daily basis. Oh man, that sucks. And you don't even know. Like, so. Bless our hearts, as we say in the South. And I don't know that we could solve that, but it, at least we've identified all the problems with no solutions. I'm going to give us props yeah. for that today. I, I, again, it's what keeps us interesting. It keeps it interesting for all of us to try and figure out. And that's why, again, I said question everything. Like the way it was done before doesn't have to be that way. If your team is writing a 60-page messaging document that you hope to hand over to sales for them to figure out, they're never going to figure it out. But you can't just hand them one sentence. So you have to figure out so it's somewhere in between is the right amount. Yeah, it is. And it's the multi multi-dimensional data that's a challenge. If this type of prospect comes in and this, then you use this type of message because they might be dealing with these probabilistically they'll do, they deal with these particular problems. But then if they don't, I'm all the way down this decision tree and I had 30 seconds to figure that out. That's what sales calls are like. That's right. And the thing that I think that we're all guilty of a little bit in the industry I've noticed is we want to tell you about us. And I think the art of really understanding the customer and what challenges do you have and what are you trying to accomplish? And I'm not original for saying this, but it's just 
I don't want to tell you about us. And I love the challenge of having no logos on your first pitch deck. None of your stuff can be in there. You have to talk about them. And I think that's, again, as a marketer, that's a different set of challenges. And I think the right thing to do, because I don't want, if I'm buying, I don't want to hear about you. I want to hear about you later. <laughs> I want to know that you understand yeah. my problem and how I can solve it. If I ask, and if I ask as a buyer, I've been on the buy side too, it's just don't give me all the BS. Like why not because you've been around 25 years, I don't care, that was a different business. Not because of this or that or the other thing. Why? Like why should I literally care because there's six other vendors kicking my door down and at the end of the day, I need to spend a million dollars by the end of the year. and the solutions will satisfice for they'll be good enough. And I think that's the challenge, right? There's not enough differentiation. And if there is, you better be able to explain it. Okay. You get a couple of minutes here of, I, I told you that I always ask my guests, what things must be on the radar for B2B leaders in general over the next year or so to just to, maybe if they're not thinking about it from your perspective, what they should be thinking about. Yeah. For B2B leaders, I think the challenge of what our customers are going through is where the biggest opportunity and challenge I think is, which is hybrid companies, remote first companies that are trying to go back to office. We can all debate where everyone is in that process. But if you're selling into that, you used to be able to travel to a particular prospect's site and talk to them about their thing. And now you're on Zoom all the time. And I think the nature of what going back in person is going to mean for marketers and how you can make not just the same old booth at Dreamforce, but a different experience, I think is a real opportunity for us to change how marketing contributes to the whole go-to-market. And I think that's, it's the rules aren't, haven't been written. Like, how exciting is that? No company's really figured it out yet. Trade shows haven't really figured it out yet. So why not try to rewrite things? No, we've figured out that purely virtual events on Zoom are boring. I'm not a, I'm an introvert and I'm not a live event guy, but there's something about that excitement of, even if I only want to do it for an hour, like having a live event thing is just different and change of pace is important. It's fascinating though, because if you did a in-person event, let's say in New York City, you typically, if you got 50% of your people accepting and showing up, that was high. And, but in virtual events, people can easily show up. Now they don't stay the whole time and they may not be paying attention, but the, as a metric, that attendance percentage really went up. And so how do you make it interesting? How do you make it bite-sized? How do you engage and get through the noise? And I think that's, again, part of it, part of our challenge right now. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. Mark, great insights, man. Really great episode. Really appreciate it. If people are resonating and would like to reach out to you, what are the best channels to do that? Obviously, LinkedIn's easy. And then also, I think, mgrilly at commercehub.com. All right. We love it, man. Thanks for coming out and recording with us. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.